Hello, everyone. Welcome to the World of NP podcast, an informative platform for healthcare consumers and providers where your voices matter. My name is Dr. Christine. Today's episode, we will cover the five reasons why nurses get in trouble with the BRN and strategies to prevent them. The nursing board takes complaints very seriously, and they are required by law to investigate each complaint received. The mission of the licensing board is to protect the public. The Board of Registered Nursing investigate complaints to ensure that the licensee is practicing ethically, competently, and is capable of providing safe care. The Board of Nursing is commonly abbreviated as BRN, and we will refer to the Board of Nursing as BRN from this point on. Complaints to the BRN could come from various sources, such as from patients, co-workers, members of the public, or employers. The complaints could come from form of a phone call, written complaint, or via complaint form through the Board of Nursing website. Other nursing boards, agencies, or law enforcement could report alleged wrongdoings to the BRN as well. Also, in some states, nurses are, by law, required to self-report. The BRN's process of investigation is to gather facts surrounding the complaint by interviewing nurses, all involved parties, review records, and gathered all relevant evidence surrounding the complaint. The information gathered could be used to exonerate or to prosecute nurses further. In today's podcast, attorney Ted S. will discuss the top five common reasons that could prompt an investigation by the Board of Nursing. He will also discuss strategies to prevent them, and, and he will review the disciplinary process. Although attorney S. is practicing in Indiana, and what he will discuss will pertain to Indiana's BRN rules and regulations, the general information may be relevant to all nurses. Please make sure to check with your state, verified, and complied with the state's rules and regulation. Good afternoon. Welcome, Attorney Todd S. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Great. Attorney S., could you please highlight your education and your law background? Sure. I am a male nurse. I was uh, licensed back in 95. And so I spent three years working at Parkview Hospital up in Fort Wayne, Indiana as a geriatric psych nurse. And my time was spent working with a small group of uh, juveniles, or we had a couple adult units that included a locked unit. We also were involved in emergency detentions and 72-hour detentions. And then some of our, our residents were actually waiting for beds at the, at the state hospital. So we did many things there. And then back in 1998, I thought about becoming what was then called a court-appointed special advocate, like for kids, for children in court, basically a voice. But instead, I just decided to go all in. And I went to law school here in Indianapolis. And so that's when I started to, to shift gears. And so I graduated back in 2001. During my time in law school, I also had the honor and the privilege of working with the Innocence Project. And so through that experience, I was able to help a man who had been wrongfully convicted. And so being so close to that made me realize is that these things did happen, not just in the movies, but that just regular everyday people could be accused and sometimes even convicted of things that they uh, did not do. So that started me down this path of being a criminal defense attorney, which I did for about 20 years. 
And then I, I pivoted my practice and went back to my roots as a nurse. And so for the last two years, I've been working for Brown Law Office in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. And so I mainly do uh, licensure defense, representing mostly nurses, but also a handful of doctors and dentists and pharmacists in front of their respective boards. So that's what brought me kind of full circle and back to my nursing roots. And then in addition, my sister's a nurse and she's actually a, a nurse informaticist down in uh, Tucson, Arizona. So I'm not going to say it runs in the family, but certainly nursing is a big part of uh, my life. And, and, and again, when I started working here, I was actually very happy to, to work with and represent nurses who had a variety of problems that they had to address in front of the board. Thank you. Could you please share with us your experience with licensing defense and specifically your experience with defending registered nurses, nurse practitioner within the disciplinary action against the license? Sure. There's uh, so many places where I could just jump in, but the most common thing that I see is, and, and this is something that needs to be considered by every nurse and to the extent that they don't cover this in nursing school, I think it should be addressed. And that is to know that once you leave the, the comfort of nursing school, then you have a license that it took a lot to, to get there. But then of course, when you start working at a hospital or any other facility, you need to take in, into consideration that the things that go on there, and in particular, any write-ups or reprimands that you get, any discipline that you receive, and most certainly if you're terminated from that position, then all of a sudden you have to take a different look at your practice because it doesn't happen all the time, but often when a nurse is terminated, I always look at it as adding insult to injury. It's bad enough that you've got to go through the pain of losing your job, but then in addition, the employer will often send a consumer complaint in to, in Indiana, the way it's structured is the board of nursing is a separate, like, entity or agency from the attorney general's office. And so in Indiana, the attorney general's office conducts the, the investigations into these consumer complaints. However, I do understand that in other states, it's actually the board of nursing and they have their own group of investigators that does that. But be that as it may, so that's usually my first contact with, as a nur with nurses, with other nurses. And that is, is, is they've lost their job. And then in addition, the employer has filed a consumer complaint against them. And so you can imagine how their heads are just spinning at that point because already they're flustered because they are looking for a new job. And then in the meantime, they get a consumer complaint in the mail. So that's usually where I have contact with them and that's where it begins. So the consumer complaint is basically a very early stage of the investigation into this particular nurse. And then from there, it can play out for months, if, if not years. Just to put things in perspective, is licensing defense more common than medical malpractice allegation against nurses? Oh, absolutely. And, and I, I, I can base this on my experience in helping nurses renew their licenses. Because here in Indiana, you need to disclose if you've had a malpractice judgment entered against you or settled a malpractice action. And in the, the two years that I've been doing this, there's out of the hundreds of nurses that I've represented, only one ever had to answer that question in the uh, affirmative. So by and large, most of the nurses that 
when they're uh, renewing their licenses, that's usually what they're addressing is either receiving discipline by the board of nursing or having an administrative complaint pending in front of the board. And then there's also a question that addresses criminal matters. And I see a lot of DUIs in my practice, nurses that are arrested, charged, and sometimes convicted of a DUI. And so there's quite a few of those. And then finally, I think the, the, the big category is workplace discipline. And again, you could break it down into kind of four subparts. And that would be workplace reprimands, workplace disciplines, demotions, and, and terminations. One of the interesting things that comes up, especially in representing nurses who are renewing their licenses, is having a conversation about you left this facility and how did that play out or how did that happen? Where you were given a write-up, what did that look like? And these are important questions because it does get a little bit murky from time to time when you're talking to a nurse and and they may have been, and, and, and that's the thing, I've experienced a variety of terms, everything, a reprimand could be called uh, a verbal warning, a verbal counseling, uh, a written warning, a written counseling, all these things constitute at the very minimum a reprimand. And I'll give you an example where I, I was present for a board hearing and there was a young nurse who was representing herself in front of the board. And the issue came up of whether she had been reprimanded because I think in her explanation or positive response to the board, she indicated that she had, but she hadn't answered that question previously when she had renewed her license. And so naturally the board became very interested in that subject and, and pursued it. And in doing so, the nurse basically explained that, right, the, her employer had told her, well, and, and, and they had really sugarcoated it in the sense that they had told her, we're going to give you this write-up, but you don't have to disclose that to the board. And she took that to, to heart and obviously didn't believe in her employer that this wasn't a big deal. And I think that they just wanted to placate her. But in doing so, she didn't disclose that to the board. And later on, when it was discovered, the board really bristled at, at finding out because they said, no, we're the final word on what is and what is not a reprimand and not your employer. So I have those conversations with nurses and obviously I've got to go into more detail uh, about what happened. And then there's another thing that, that comes up with some frequency and, that, and it's another murky topic, which is rhetorically speaking, like, was I, was I fired? Was I terminated? Sometimes it's not very clear because the nurse subjectively might believe, okay, I resigned, I quit. And it's from their point of view, very black and white. However, I can tell you that it's not uncommon for the employer to take a different position or point of view. And that is that, no, we terminated you. And so there, there could be this, I mean, disagreement. And sometimes I don't have the visibility into the employee's file. And so I'm just taking the, the nurse's word for it. And but it's a very important issue because if you were terminated, if the nurse was terminated and they don't disclose it, then the board looks at that or the attorney general's office looks at that as renewal fraud. And so sometimes it's better to err on the side of caution. Even if you're very confident in yourself that, hey, I beat them to the punch. You can't fire me. I quit kind of thing. But, but in, in doing so, again, I guess there's a certain amount of pride involved in that too, where you don't want to say that you were fired. But at the same time, you might want to err on the side or nurses might want to err on the side of caution and, and, and disclose that they were terminated, or at least that it is a little bit fuzzy or murky. 
because if, if they don't, then what follows is an administrative complaint and an allegation of a renewal fraud. And then it's, then you're going to be brought up on, on this charge and you've got to explain yourself. And so I have a lot of conversations like that with nurses when it comes to whether they were reprimanded, whether they were terminated. And so that's very common in my practice. If the nurse discloses on the renewal form that she was reprimanded, would that instantly prompt an investigation by the BRN? Here's the thing. And I look at different scenarios that play out and of course, there could be a situation like you described where the nurse was terminated. However, it did not result in the employer filing a consumer complaint. And so basically the next opportunity anyone would have to address it would be during renewal season when the nurse has to disclose it. And assuming that the nurse does, then at the, what we call a personal appearance in front of the board, the board member has a, a limited number of options as far as what they can do at a renewal. Here in Indiana, one of the options would be clearly to renew the, the nurse's license, what we call free and clear. Another option would be to renew the nurse's license on probation. And then there's a, another option, which I guess is closer to the first, which is that the, the license can be renewed free and clear. However, the, uh, the board member at that point could say, you know what? This might be something that the attorney general would be interested in. And if it hasn't already been reported to the attorney general's office, I'm going to do so now as part of my recommendation that your license is renewed. And so then at that point, the, uh, the staff there basically generate a consumer complaint on behalf of the board itself or the professional licensing agency. And then they forward that to the uh, attorney general's office. There's different points that exists where a consumer complaint could be filed. Naturally, as you talked about in your introduction, a consumer complaint could be filed by the employer. I've seen consumer complaints filed by the board, like I described at the personal appearance. And then also the, uh, the professional licensing agency here in Indiana is not always uh, neutral in respect to if it gets an email or something addressing a question or an issue, they might say, we don't have the answer, but we'll go ahead and forward it to the attorney general's office as a consumer complaint and let them figure it out. So yeah, there's many different ways that a consumer complaint could start. And then of course you have other issues that come up. It's odd, but I've got to address the reality of it, which is that, yeah, sometimes personal relationships, drama, I've seen a handful of ex-wives, ex-husbands file consumer complaints against their former spouse, who's a nurse, boyfriends, girlfriends, roommates, things like that. It's just because when you have a professional license like this, you do have a certain amount of, of exposure. And, and if people know that and that they, whatever their motives are, but yeah, I think that sometimes people take advantage of that or, or seek to exploit it by saying, I don't know what's going on with you, but I think I'm going to file a consumer complaint against you just to let someone else know about it. And then it's almost like in some instances, a, a betrayal, but you do see it. So again, I think that was a, maybe a broad answer to your question about where a consumer complaint can come from. But yeah, certainly at the time that the, the board member would speak to a, a nurse during the renewal process, then they could themselves refer the, the matter to the attorney general's office. Do the complaints filed by ex-wives, ex-husbands, do the board take those complaints seriously? Do they ever consider them to be frivolous complaints? 
Here's the thing. Sometimes there is merit to them and, and you can see the, the, the relationships play out because typically what I've seen is where the ex will have kind of some knowledge about something that happened. Like for example, let's say the, the nurse is the, is the ex-wife, her ex-husband finds out that she was terminated and maybe nothing came of it. The, the employer didn't notify the attorney general by way of consumer complaint, but he knows. And so he just does it just to, like I said, take advantage of the situation. I've also seen it. So here's the thing. If it's, if it's an actual termination, there might be merit to it. Certainly he wasn't involved. I guess that's my point is that, right. It didn't affect him whatsoever, but at the same time, he looked, he became an opportunist. He said, oh, she's in a bad situation. So why don't I make it worse? Likewise, if an ex finds out about a criminal case that was filed, they might bring that to the, the attorney general or the board's uh, attention. So yeah, there, there is a, and that's the other thing I've, after, again, like I said, going through the innocence project, I have to look at the world and, and, and the reality of it. And that is, is that there is a certain amount of spite, but I will say this is that is not clear. That is not the majority of consumer complaints that I see filed by disgruntled exes or whatever. What are the common consumer complaints? Something that is interesting that I, I wish that there was a kind of a, a formula for is when you, like I said, or described before the insult on top of injury, I, I, I wouldn't say that most terminations are followed by a consumer complaint, but I will tell you that there are many and, and, and I see it with enough frequency that I, I, I ask myself, wow, I didn't realize that in nursing school that if there was the prospect of me getting fired, that it would all also lead to some kind of disciplinary matter or consumer complaint, that, that kind of thing. Those things in my mind were completely separated, but, but that aside, I, I see it go hand in hand quite often with terminations. I can't say with what frequency, but it does seem to be more likely than not that if a nurse is terminated, you are going to get a consumer complaint. And the, the employer's motive for that may just be to CYA to cover themselves and they might just want to bring it to the board's attention if they think it's serious enough. But yeah, that is, that is something that, that does happen with, with some frequency. And then let me see the other kind of relationships that you have with your, your employer, if they have a suspicion or not by relationship, but if they suspect that there's diversion going on or something like that that very often lead. So this could be even prior to, and this could be a situation like, for example, if an employer suspected a nurse of diverting, but the nurse said, okay, I can read the writing on the wall. I'm just going to go ahead and quit or resign in advance of, because maybe they see that there's an investigation that's gearing up something like that. And they think, okay, I'll just beat them to the punch and go ahead and resign or quit. That would probably still result in a consumer complaint. Even if you weren't terminated, it's just because again, the employer is going to cover themselves and they're going to say, okay, technically you resigned and we didn't terminate you, but we're still not going to let this go. We're going to let the attorney general's office know about this and they can just pursue this as an investigation. How often do you see complaints filed by consumers or patients when they're not happy with their care? Oh, that's a good question. I, I can't say that I see it more from the, the employers, but I have seen a handful of complaints that were written by dissatisfied yeah, patients or, or clients that were not happy with their care. 
this takes on kind of a variety of appearances. Sometimes it's, it's the patient or I've clearly seen, uh, you know, family members file it on behalf of the patient, depending on the, the patient's capacity. And, and typically it involves something like neglect or sometimes abuse allegations, which obviously that's get, that gets the attention of the attorney general's office pretty quickly. But yeah, you do see that with, but like I said, it's not as common as the employers themselves, but right. And that's something that I think every nurse should remember is that what I've heard described as the optics of it all. And that is, is that right. When you have that face-to-face -face with the, the patient or the client or, or the patient's family, that is a, a, a real moment there. And, and as I these people are often clearly very vulnerable at times. And so, right, they can be very sensitive to about anything. And so, right, if it's the kind of thing, like, for example, if they ask you a question about what the policy is on, on, on changing some IV tubing or something, and you don't know that off the top of your head, then they may, they may take issue with that. So there are things that come up. I can't say again, very frequently, but the consumers, you know, themselves do know that's an option out there. Attorney S, we are reviewing the five common causes for disciplinary action. And as you indicated earlier, we reviewed the renewal fraud and we touched base a little bit on conviction. I believe you indicated the second common cause for disciplinary action is drunk driving conviction. So, right. We did touch on probably the most common issue that I run into, which is the renewal fraud. And then after that, there are a high number of convictions for dr specifically drunk driving. And I'm obviously there's a, a lot of crimes out there, but I see by and large, especially among licensed professionals, DUI convictions. And so this is a subject that I think every disciplinary board or professional board is, is familiar with. And they do look at it very seriously because what I've heard said again and again because the nurse may go in there and say, what's going on? Why are you interested in my DUI? It happened the weekend that I was off. I wasn't scheduled until the following Monday or Tuesday. So this has nothing to do with my license. And I've seen that so many times. And, and the response is always, you are a nurse 24-7. And so the board looks at it as really almost like more of a character issue and they don't necessarily let it go. Now, I will say that some cases, if you're convicted and you've successfully completed your probation, and by the time it reaches the board, if you've done that and you're off probation and, and, and whatever other conditions that you had to satisfy, then they, for, for the most part, as long as they don't think that you otherwise have some kind of diagnosis for alcohol or substance abuse kind of dependence, then they'll more or less let it go. But I can't say that would happen all the time because Again, the board is always genuinely interested in these DUI convictions and they are very, they do not hesitate to send nurses here in Indiana to get basically a substance abuse evaluation from its own, they have a contracted treatment provider that they use, formerly known as ISNAP, the Indiana State Nurses Assistance Program. Now it's called IPRP, the Indiana Professional Recovery Program. And, and, and is that, and it is that organization that is responsible for not only providing these substance abuse evaluations at the request of the board, but they also have their own monitoring program, which is in, in many ways, very similar to criminal probation. 
And so they are basically like an arm of the board. And so if the board, my, my point is this, is that if a nurse comes in with a DUI conviction and, and, and say there's something about it that it is kind of makes it unusual, meaning that the blood alcohol is high, like we're talking about like a 0.23, 0.24 blood alcohol level, maybe there was an accident or the car rolled over. That's something that they might say, this isn't your garden variety DUI. And we might want to look into this a little bit closer. So we're going to have you evaluated. And then based on that evaluation, if IPRP determines that the nurse meets the criteria for a diagnosis under the DSM-5, which anyone can buy or pull off the shelf. And then at that point, the IPRP would want to monitor the nurse for a certain period of time. And so that's where it gets a little bit more complicated. And again, it's a direct consequence of these DUI convictions. I, I can't say the same thing wouldn't happen for just possession charges. And that probably varies by state. Obviously in California, it could mean something completely different than it does here in Indiana, but it's the DUI or the OVWI, the drunk driving scenario that I just see so much of that it, it just really, it really can't be ignored. And again, it has a, a big impact on your license in some instances, especially, like I said, if it doesn't, if it's not the typical driving at 0 0.09 blood alcohol level, you just failed to use a turn signal that that is not as alarming as, like I said, a, a situation that involved some kind of accident or injury or a very high blood alcohol level. Attorney, as in some instances, in some states, there is a self-reporting requirement for convictions. Right. Likewise, in Indiana, there is a 90-day notice requirement that does not apply if you're, you know, just merely arrested or charged. But if you are convicted, there is a statute in place that requires you to disclose that conviction to the board within 90 days. And then what's interesting is that that notice doesn't simply go to what's called the professional licensing agency and then just get, you know, stored somewhere. In fact, what happens is we've seen it very often that when you disclose that notice of conviction to the PLA, the professional licensing agency, they will in turn forward that to the attorney general's office by way of a consumer complaint, basically transforming a notice of conviction into a consumer complaint. And then again, the attorney general's office would do its due diligence, and then they would determine at some point whether it rose to the, the level of a concern that they should file an administrative complaint. So that notice requirement does exist in Indiana. What strategies can nurses employ to prevent getting in trouble under conviction issues? Oh, <laughs> as far as their personal lives, and that's the thing, of course, most of the time when I have... Uh, contact, it, it's usually after the case, the criminal case, the, the drunk driving case has already been disposed, meaning there's already been a, a resolution, either a plea agreement or, you know, it's been dismissed or there's been a conviction by some other means, like for example, a trial. But yeah, once, as far as how people conduct themselves, again, I guess what I would refer to is that notion that I put out there earlier, which is that you are a nurse 24 um, seven, but that's the thing. I don't want to preach to people. I'm more concerned while the criminal case is pending, there, there are reasons to, I guess you could say fight it. And this is coming from me as a former criminal defense attorney, because the, the impact, I guess what you could call collateral consequences 
of a conviction. Like for example, if, if, if someone here was here illegally or they've got immigration issues, they've got a pending criminal case. There could be collateral consequences for a conviction, meaning specifically a deportation, depending on the, the nature of the conviction. Likewise, I just use this for purposes of comparison or analogy that there are collateral consequences that nurses need to be aware of if they, if they are convicted of certain crimes. A DUI could certainly lead to problems with your license and, and nurses need to be mindful of that. And there's also situations that could get the attention of the, the Health and Human Services Department. They have a watchdog group or agency called the Office of the Inspector General, and they look for convictions among healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, and so there are some instances, and usually these are like related to healthcare. Like for example, if, if a nurse was convicted of diverting from a facility where they were working, then the office of the inspector general might look into that. And then if, if they thought that if there was diversion or fraud, they might place the, the nurse on the office of the inspector general's what's called the exclusion list, which is basically a database or a list of nurses and other healthcare practitioners who, and the interesting thing is this, is that the Office of the Inspector General can't take away your nursing license, but what they can do is that they can say, you can't provide any services to Medicare or Medicaid patients. And then in doing so, they extremely limit your opportunities for, for employment. And so that's a collateral kind of consequence of a conviction too. So. Yeah, but as far as, as far as avoiding the, those things, I, I think it just goes along with what I was saying earlier, which is right. Once you've graduated from nursing school and, and you have this license, the, the, the license itself, no, let me put it this way. No one can take the education away from you. No, they'll never be able to do that. But the license, yeah, now that's a little bit more fragile. And think on a, I hate to say daily basis, but right, when you clock in, it's, there's more at stake than, than what you might think. And I guess just to jump in another, into another topic, I brought it up earlier. I assume everybody who's listening knows what it is, but diversion is basically the allegation or the accusation that the nurse has taken medication or in, in particular, it could be really anything, but it's, the allegation is usually based on some kind of narcotic or, or controlled substance or scheduled drug. But those are the kind of things too that just when you're in the workplace, you need to be very mindful of that because handling narcotics, I can tell you when, when I was a young nurse, I, I didn't think about it like that. And this was back in the nineties, but yeah, when you're handling uh, narcotics, you're basically like handling nitroglycerin and you need to be very careful and thoughtful with that because if there's any kind of misstep or error, either in the documentation or the wasting, that kind of thing, unfortunately, in this kind of opioid ep epidemic climate, the first thing that uh, anyone's going to think is that, well, there must have been diversion going on. They really don't always look at it like an innocent mistake. And so that's something that I know I'm, I'm digressing a, a little bit, but that's something on a day-to-day -day basis. Like no one wakes up and says, I'm going to go can get a DUI today. When you do wake up and you go into work and you're handling these narcotics, that's something that, again, it is, it is such a delicate process when you either you're removing the narcotic from the, the, the Pyxis or the Omnicell, and then all the steps that you have to take between removing it from the machine and actually getting it to the, the patient and then charting it and so forth. 
One thing I've seen that nurses can be more thoughtful or mindful of, they, they really need to be familiar with their, uh, their policies and procedures. One thing uh, that I have seen, which is related to a nurse not knowing the, the, the policies and procedures, is that you might pull a medication and with the intention to pass it or administer it, and in fact you do. But did, you know, I don't think a lot of nurses, or I can't say a lot of nurses, but some nurses don't know that once you pull that medication, there's a clock that starts ticking and under certain policies, you have to pass that medication sometimes within a half hour to an hour of pulling it. And so you just can't hold on to it. And so I've seen situations where there, there's no question that the, the, the med, the, you know, all the five rights or six rights were adhered to, but it was just a timing issue as far as when it was administered because it didn't adhere to the policy. And so that's something on a day-to-day -day basis, either clearly in practice when you're at work, you can be thoughtful about, but right, as far as people's lives outside work, I, I just suppose they conduct them or should conduct themselves like, like anyone else. But the DUI seems to have a special place in front of the, in front of the board. And, and here's the thing, I couldn't tell you what the numbers are as far as the statistics, but I think that there are a fair number of healthcare professionals who drink. And, and for that, it might be related to the, the, the stress and, and the environment and, and, and so forth. But again, it all turns on that decision to, to get, I know this is like cliche, but it all turns on that decision to get behind the wheel because that's what the board looks at. And they just, here's unfortunately what they do is they look at that moment in time where you decided to get behind the wheel and they say to themselves, you didn't use good judgment. And, and unfortunately what they do is they extrapolate that and they say, if you weren't using good judgment at that moment, who's to say what you're doing when you're on the clock? And so that's how, again, you get to this, you're a nurse 24 seven kind of thinking where they take those, those small decisions you make, whether either in or out, outside of the workplace. And they say, we need to take a closer look at this because like you said in your introduction, it's always about public safety, always. And, and when it comes to making a decision, they will always err on the side of protecting the public. Attorney S, the fourth reason for nurses to be aware of that are commonly known for nurses to get in trouble is the improper documentations are not properly documenting pertaining to medication administration, the timing, the wasting. Right. What's really interesting about this subject, and so again, for our listeners, we're doing this top five list. So, right, the first one would be the, the renewal fraud. Second one would be the DUI. Third one would be what I lumped together as medication, administration, documentation, and wasting errors. And when you look at this, really there is no diversion going on, okay? We're just going to start with, or use that as a premise. There is no diversion going on, but there are still errors that have been made either in the administration, documentation, or wasting of a particular you know, substance, typically a narcotic. And unfortunately, when this happens, especially when it involves a narcotic, all these red flags go off. In fact, it really fascinated me to see how the pharmacies become like a little watchdog group within a hospital. And so they're looking at these irregularities and they're able to, either through some kind of algorithm or whatever, they can look at how these nurses are passing their meds and, and, what they, and they look for what are called outliers, meaning that was this nurse passing too many narcotics for us not to notice it? And so then that, that kind of puts you on their radar. 
But again, we're starting from the premise that there is no diversion. But again, if they think that you're passing too many narcotics at any particular time, they get on, you'll get on their radar and then they go back and look at everything. They look at your charting, your documentation, your wasting, all of that. And if they find any irregularities, then they start to develop a suspicion. Now this suspicion, again, there may be no basis for it other than these little mistakes, which are bound to happen from time to time. But when they happen too often, then that again, starts to raise too many red flags. And so they become very suspicious of diversion. This is a, a topic that I wanted to address, which is that you run into this kind of out of the frying pan into the fire situation, which is that again, there's no diversion going on, but because of these errors, it leads to a suspicion. And then what does this suspicion lead to? A four cause urine drug screen. And then it's usually at that point that, and, and this is where, this is where there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that the urine drug screen, you didn't test positive for anything that you were accused of diverting, but the bad news is you tested positive for something that you were taking on the outside or outside of work and you didn't have a prescription for, or marijuana or whatever it might be. And so that's where these nurses find themselves in a situation where it does, it seems very baffling. Wait a second. Isn't that a good thing? I wasn't diverting. And then all of a sudden they get terminated or suspended or whatever for testing positive for something that they were never accused of diverting. Again, that this makes some people's heads spin because they're very surprised by, by this reaction or this result that they lose their jobs. But again, if you show up as an outlier because they think you're passing too many narcotics, or if there's irregularities in, in your charting or with your wasting, if it's not being witnessed or you're not following policies and procedures, then, then I guess two ways that it could play out. One would be that you get either, they confirm their belief that these are just med errors, which they could say enough is enough and they could report you as a, well, file a consumer complaint against you anyway, because they're just saying there's just too many. Honestly, that could just lead to the, the perception that you're just a, a bad or a sloppy nurse. You just make too many mistakes, which is possible, but I guess better that than being accused of the diversion. And then if we go down the, the diversion road, um, again, it could lead to a, a urine drug screen, which is either going to be negative which will exonerate you that you weren't diverting and which obviously would be very helpful, or you're going to test positive for either something that you were diverting, maybe something that you weren't diverting, but didn't have a prescription to, or something that you couldn't have a, here in Indiana, you can't have a prescription for medical marijuana. And so that trips a lot of nurses up. The other spinoff issue that kind of arises from this would be the situation where the nurse is presented with the four cause urine drug screen, and then they choose just to walk out or basically just quit on the spot, which I would say that just based on my experience, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. They may just be like offended basically and say, I'm not going to take this test and you can take this job and shove it. But unfortunately where that happens, I have seen the attorney general's office and even the board draw, I guess what you would call a negative inference from that, meaning that if you walked off the job or if you walked away from a drug screen like that, Maybe you were clean and maybe you would have tested negative, but they're just going to presume that, that you wouldn't. And so they don't give you the benefit of the, of the doubt when you walk off like that. And, and I've seen that enough now where it is, I guess you could call a thing or a phenomenon 
Because like I said, many nurses don't like being accused of something that they didn't do. And I've also seen situations where naturally they're questioned about it and that could take place at work. I know something that came into my mind was when a nurse gets a consumer complaint filed against them based on allegations like this, they need to understand that I can, I'll just speak for Indiana, but right. When the attorney general's office begins to look into this, they might use an investigator and that investigator might reach out to the nurse wanting to take a statement. But I've seen it far, and this is again from me having been a criminal defense attorney, but I've seen it far too often where it may seem harmless or innocuous at the time, because this is just an investigator from the state. He's not like a police officer, like he doesn't have arrest powers, but What's misleading about that is that, but the investigation that he's conducting, and in particular, if you give him a statement and then he suspects that there was diversion going on, the report that he files basically becomes part of the criminal investigation. And then he can get probable cause from a judge for, for, for charges um, to be filed. This is in conjunction with the prosecutor or what, whatever, but, but yeah, if a nurse has a, even if they don't have a pending consumer complaint, if they're ever approached by a state investigator asking questions about something that happened at work, they really should. They, they should contact an attorney or I would look at it like a criminal investigation and assert your right to remain silent or your right to an attorney. Those things that are said during those seemingly harmless conversations between a nurse and, and a state investigator, it can be taken out of context. First of all, is it going to be recorded? And then what, if it's not, that's really dangerous because things can be taken out of context. And, and the other thing I'll say on this subject, I hope I'm not bouncing around too much, but the other thing I'll say is that, you know what, nurses are often questioned about events that happened weeks, if not months earlier. And then it, it's fascinating to see the investigator feel like, oh, I'm going to put this nurse on the spot and ask him, what did you do on, when I mean, we're talking about maybe a year ago with patient A and you pass this med, cause he's got all the records in front of him and he's got the time date stamps and he's like, you pass this medication at this time. And then all of a sudden you're trying to rack your brain for any recollection of what that, what happened on that day. And so my point is this, is that nurses won't have that, that recollection, or if they do, it'll be a little bit fuzzy because of the, the time that's passed. And so inevitably they'll say something that they regret saying, but of course, once it's out there and once you've said it, then the investigator will use that against you. So again, even if you're very confident and in your own belief that you didn't divert or do anything wrong or whatever, it's best not to talk to an investigator about it, especially after a consumer complaint's been filed, but, but clearly at any time. You recommended that nurses should insert a fifth amendment to not self-incriminate, but to retain attorney. Have you been retained for instances like that, where nurses were able to exercise their fifth amendment rights and have not talked to the investigator once they retain you? What usually happens during the investigation process? Okay, great. And our office does handle that. In, in a case that I'm thinking of now, it's while the, the consumer complaint is pending and it's already been filed, but... But right, once the investigator, of course, the client had already hired us to respond to the consumer complaint, but upon being approached or contacted by the investigator, naturally she told us, and then we reached out to the investigator and basically just shut the whole thing down, which is really my practice when I was a criminal defense attorney. Experience taught me 
that there is very little to be gained in assisting an investigator with, by making a voluntary statement. And so that's where we just step in. And, and that's the thing, having experience with this, it's a little bit easier for me to, to put myself in between the investigator and my client and be unapologetic for it because depending on a, a nurse or a client's demeanor, they, they may not feel like they can say no, especially to a government agent or, or an investigator like this. But again, that's the value of having an attorney is that they can do that. And, and again, the investigator can clearly provide me with whatever information that they believe they have that would lead to this belief. And they can provide me with the questions and I can review those questions with my client. We could always provide, if we wanted to respond at all, we could always provide a written response. But here's the thing, back in my, this is drawing from my criminal defense experience. I've watched many interrogations of, of criminal defendants and people who, who have been accused of crimes. And I gotta just tell you, these guys are experts at interrogating. These detectives and investigators, they know exactly what you're doing. And when they get you in a room by, there's usually just you and them. And every, everything is controlled, like from where you're sitting and where they're sitting and how they ask you the questions and, and the pace and the tone and everything like that. If anybody goes in there and thinks that they're going to just, this is my point. If anybody goes in there and just thinks, well, I didn't do anything. So all I need to do is just tell the truth and all this will go away. It's no, it doesn't happen like that. It's just sad. And I know again, but I come from a different background where, you know, my, my experience with the innocence project showed me that there is such a thing as a false confession, or there is a situation that could arise from someone just being interrogated for so long that they just give in or, or, or admit to something that they, and once you've done that, there, it's, it's hard to unring the bell. Again, with any nurse that is being contacted by any kind of investigator, clearly police officers. But what's interesting, again, is in Indiana, it's not the police that are going out there and, and looking for a statement. It's these investigators. And, and I think they're a little bit more savvy in the sense that, right, they don't present themselves. They're not there with the hat and the gun and all that. And it's, that might make someone hesitate, but, but I think that they are very skilled. And so it's best just to stay, you know, as, as far away from them as possible. Because again, I would rather work a case out where the client did not give a statement than having to try to either, like I said, reconstruct the statement if it wasn't actually recorded or if it was recorded and just listening to it and being, oh my gosh, I wish you hadn't have said that. But, but those are the pitfalls that people encounter when they try to take this on themselves. And again, I think it's from, I guess what you could call a naive mindset, which is that I didn't divert. So I don't have anything to be afraid of, but that is not the way that it's perceived. And in fact, they look at the, the glass as half empty most of the time, meaning that there, there, there was diversion, even though the nurses know I, I never diverted that kind of thing. Pertaining to this investigation issue by the investigator, because they are investigator and they're not police officers, they're not obligated to say anything that you say will and shall be used against you. Right now, I, I have listened, like I said, I, I've listened to many interrogations of clients who, who, who were arrested and were basically placed in a, in a room with no windows, with a police officer who was armed. And under those circumstances, the, the client has to be advised of their 
Miranda warnings and so forth, that they have the right to remain silent, they have the right to an attorney. But I, but exactly, not so necessarily with an investigator. And they may even start out and say, hey, you're free to go at any time. Again, it just doesn't have many of the, I guess you could say, same hallmarks of what you would think of as a criminal investigation. Because, and, and here's the thing, and in a way, and this is something that's peculiar to, I think, these, these kind of situations is that I have seen situations where there was clear diversion and the matter is only addressed in front of the, the, the licensing board as what we call an administrative complaint, which is just a civil matter. And then I've seen other cases that, that go the other way and they turn into criminal cases. And then I've seen a number of cases where there's both, there's a criminal case and there's a civil case, the licensure case. But yeah, you can't be naive and think about it like a nurse who's thinking, I, I don't think that this is gonna go into a criminal case, so I'll just go ahead and talk to the investigator because the worst they can do is go after my license. But again, it could go the other way and there's not always a, a, a rhyme or a reason for it because I look at like situations where there's diversion, like there's clear diversion and a nurse just basically, I hate to use the phrase, but lucks out and, and they don't get a criminal complaint filed. And the only venue where it's addressed is in front of the board, but some nurses aren't so lucky and, th and their cases become like a, a criminal prosecution. And, 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 and what's common or what's consistent is the, the investigator, if it's an investigator from the attorney general's office, it's their affidavit that would be basically used in both situations. Again, that's why if they're from the state, and even if they don't have a gun, you need to look at them as just, just as much of a law enforcement officer. That's the thing. I don't think they technically, I'd have to look at the Indiana statute. I don't think they technically can be a law enforcement officer because as that is defined, I'd have to double check on that. But if they're not, they are still basically like an expert witness in the field of drug diversion, things like that. And, and a lot of them actually, just as a side note, are usually former police officers or former detectives that just go into this line of work. Most of the time, the investigator usually don't say everything or anything that you may say could be used against you. The legal standard as far as giving Miranda warnings is a situation where you're not free to leave. And so, right, they could basically, and I think that there is some case law on this where if you're invited in and you accept that invitation and you come in and they sit down with you and they make it very clear that you're free to leave, then right, if you're not what we call in custody, then, then they wouldn't have to issue your Miranda warnings, which obviously by issuing someone or giving someone their Miranda warnings, you know, that's going to make you perk up a little bit and say, okay, maybe this is a little bit more serious than I thought, but it, it can actually, a situation can actually be created where you're not in custody or rather where you are free to leave. And so under those circumstances, you might be lulled into this, uh, false sense of security that, oh yeah, this is, this isn't a criminal investigation whatsoever. But here's the thing. Yeah. That's where it gets a little bit tricky as far as give, giving or what's called a, like a voluntary statement versus an involuntary one or, or one that was given without Miranda where it should have been that kind of thing. The next cause is HIPAA violation, which is the fifth common cause for disciplinary action. Could you please explain more about that? Yeah. And, and HIPAA stands for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Uh, that was passed back in the 1996. 
but it, it really, this is a good thing because when you think about yourself and your own personal history or medical history, you do have a right to privacy. And this is something that sometimes goes up to the Supreme Court and they talk about this. But yeah, that right to privacy has been enshrined in HIPAA. And so what we find and what, what, I, what really blows my mind is just how severe the penalty is for HIPAA violation. And it's because it happens under what would seem harmless circumstances where you just momentarily look into someone else's medical record. And as far as whether you're doing a deep dive or whatever, you might only pull up one screen out of maybe 30 or whatever. But in doing so, these employers, hospitals have a very hard line approach to it, which is that there's no three strikes, you're out. There's no reprimand. There's no, why don't you take three days off suspension kind of thing. It is automatic termination. And that is across the board as far as employers. It, it's really difficult for a lot of nurses because you can imagine if you are a veteran nurse 20, 30 years and, and you've reached the, some position, house supervisor or something, or maybe you're a young nurse and you've just got that dream job you've always wanted. You always wanted to be a pediatric nurse and there you are working at Riley Children's Hospital or something like that. That's what you always wanted. But there was a situation that happened here in Indiana where in a town called Noblesville, there was a school shooting at a local middle school. And so based on that, there was some interest by other nurses who were in the same system. And so they went looking for information on possible victims. And in doing so, right, there were a series of terminations. We, in this office, we represented about five or six nurses, but I know that there were several more who, again, just for looking for information, were immediately terminated. And then, of course, they had to disclose that to the board when they renewed. And then several of them were also facing administrative complaints, which I guess the good news for that, the board didn't sanction them too badly. But at the same time, just for your listeners, right, if you do get disciplined by the board, clearly that's going to go on your, your license status. It's going to show as prior discipline. And then also notice that I talked about the Office of the Inspector General, but the other collateral consequence would be that the, and this is not just for HIPAA violation, this is for pretty much any board sanction, but you'd also, your name would go to the National Practitioner Database, NPDB. And so basically you'd be there in, in there for all time for any future employer to, to see that this, uh, you receive discipline. But yeah, HIPAA violations are just fascinating in the sense that having worked in psych myself, there's just this human, this natural curiosity that people have. You look at it today as far as the value of information, right? Having information is very satisfying and there's a curiosity that, that drives it. But in these HIPAA violations, whatever, and, and like I said, I just gave you an example of a school shooting. Uh, I'm employed by uh, Lori Brown, who did an article a while back on, there was an actor out of uh, Chicago, and, and this got a lot of publicity in the sense that it, he had reported being like mugged. Lori wrote that about 50 nurses, he's an actor, Hollywood, that kind of thing, and they just couldn't help themselves, and they looked at his medical record, and in doing so, 50 nurses were terminated based on that. And, and, and that's the thing, that's what's just so impressive and really frightening about HIPAA violations is the severity of the, the consequences, especially when it comes to your employment, which is 
like I said, across the board, you're going to be terminated. The boards may take a different view of that and they may say, okay, because again, the, yeah, the board's going to look at it like apples and oranges, looking at, I know it's a violation of HIPAA, don't get me wrong, but looking at, a, at another patient's medical record isn't going to fall in the same category as drug diversion or neglecting a patient or a patient abuse or even a DUI. These are just so different. So uh, at least what I've seen in, in, in Indiana is that HIPAA violations, like I said, as far as your employment goes, you're most likely to get terminated. The board may be a little bit kinder to you than, than that. And, and by that, I mean that you're not going to be facing like probation or um, a suspension or revocation. Now, if you didn't disclose it on your renewal, then, then you might be looking at probation or something. But yeah, it was in working with nurses who had either reached the peak of their careers, or like I said, were in a place or a position that they, where they had worked very hard to get, like a children's hospital, and then they, they lost it all. And, and literally in a matter of seconds, like accessing another patient's or a patient that you're not, not actually caring for, accessing their medical record for 10 or 15 seconds is, is all it takes. And that's one of those things that I think people describe after the fact is like, like your life turning on a dime kind of thing. So yeah, as far as my top five list, I know, and we've addressed things in different places like the diversion, but yeah, that, that pretty much covers it and sums up the majority of cases and the things that I think would get the most attention. Naturally, there's going to be other things out there and we didn't go into great detail as far as like patient neglect and abuse and, and things like that. They're out there too. But again, th these would be the top five things that I see and that nurses should be aware of really not just when, when they're on the clock, but when they're off the clock. Thank you very much. Attorney S, for instances where nurses need to contact you or would like to retain you, how can they reach you? Sure. They can just, like I said, I work for the Brown Law Office here in Indianapolis, Indiana. I work with Lori Brown, who is also a nurse attorney. And so she's been doing this for far longer than I have, 30 years. And so you can contact us by visiting our website, which is www.yournurseattorney.com. And then our local number here in Indianapolis is 317-465-1065. Thank you, Attorney S., very much for all the information. Thank you as well. For general disclaimer... I would like to say that this podcast is a general information only and is not intended for medical or legal advice or endorsement of any product or services or a substitute for any adequate training, research, compliance with established protocols, federal, state, or local rules. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by the hosts or guest speakers are their personal opinions and not by the opinions of statements of any other organization, agency, employer, or company. Please join us on this unique journey and be part of the movement that will empower healthcare consumers and providers to advocate for patients and for themselves because your voices matter. Please subscribe, follow, join us for a weekly episode. For more information, please visit www.worldofnp.com. Thank you.